Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Uh, all right, open your Bibles to uh, Colossians 1, and we're going to read verses 21 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new, um, A, we can get you a Bible, uh, and B, you can also follow along uh, using the screens on my right and on my left. So please uh, go to verse 21 now. We read, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen? How many of you uh, have been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Pretty great, right? Maybe even we consider it grand? I like to think of the first person to ever stumble across the Grand Canyon, right? Like just walking along one day in the uh, hot, hot Arizona desert. And maybe I should belabor this point for those of you who are considering moving away from us to Arizona. The unbearably hot, <laughs> suffocating, sweat-inducing heat of the Arizona desert. And he like breaks through the trees and he sees Grand Canyon and his brain just explodes, right? Like I've seen it and uh, before I went there, people told me about the Grand Canyon. I saw pictures of the Grand Canyon. I've seen video of the Grand Canyon and still when I saw it, my brain was like, this isn't real. <laughs> what you're looking at is not real. Like my eyes and brain couldn't process what I was seeing. It was enormous. Did anyone identify with that at all? A little bit, you see it, and you just like, I can't think of anything else in my entire life that I've seen that my brain is like obviously fake, like can't be real. <laughs> um, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you, you know that it's, it's big, it's hard to get your brain around. Uh, you wonder like, where do I start? How do I uh, like visit the Grand Canyon? And you will walk over to a little sign and on that sign, you will see three important words. And these three words are, you are here. <laughs> and it's where you start on your journey through the Grand Canyon. It tells you the trails to take and stuff like that. Uh, if the passage that Mike preached last week was about Christ exalted, do you remember last week? You don't remember last week? Oh, you do. For those of you who weren't here, I'm going to read the passage real quickly. Is that okay, Mike, if I read it? Yeah? I didn't ask ahead of time. What's that? <laughs> okay. 9.9 out of 9. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is a marvelous passage of scripture that early Christians probably sang to each other when they gathered together at church to remind them of the enormity, of the magnitude of like the sheer cosmic size of Jesus, of God the Son. And the claims that are made there are scandalous. He always existed. He created all things. He sustains all things. All things are held together in him. These are immense claims about Jesus of Nazareth, whom people alive at the time could have met. I couldn't just grab a random person here this morning and say, in that person, all the molecules of the universe are held together. I'd be like, I don't even know what you could possibly mean by that. You sound like an insane person. And at the same time, I think it's hard for our brains to grasp how big this statement about Jesus is. Like looking at the Grand Canyon, but, but way bigger, <laughs> way more marvelous, way more meaningful. And so what Paul does is he brings the Colossians from this extremely lofty passage, exalting God the Son, the eternal one who holds all things together. He takes them to a little sign and he says, you are here. That's what Paul is doing. He uses these words, and you, and you. This is a gospel passage. Uh, if someone asked me a month ago, what is the best summary of the gospel in the Bible? I'd say, I don't know, maybe Romans 3, 21 through 26, or maybe Ephesians 2. I might say this passage now. Extremely short, extremely brief. It's a gospel passage. It's almost one of those passages where you read it and you're like, I don't know what I should say other than what Paul says here is true and you should believe it. He really does three things. He talks about our past and he talks about our present as believers and our future. So real quickly, let's begin uh, with our past rebellion. Our past is a past of rebellion. Go with me again to verse 21 and let's read it. Paul says, and you, and then he's going to describe the Colossians, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Once were alienated, hostile in mind doing evil deeds. What does it mean to be alienated? It's good, I heard some answers. Separated, external to, I was trying to think of an analogy, I'm going to use a sports analogy, can I do that? You're like, can you? We're not sure. I did it last night, and then Jared gave me a drive home, and he gave me some tips on how to make the sports analogy better. <laughs> I don't know if it was good advice or not. I assume it is, because he's a sports guy, and I'm not a sports guy. So uh, who is external to the Lakers? Like, people like Spurs? I don't know. Oh, so you guys are like me. You're not really sports people. I should just skip past this. All right, so imagine the Lakers get together to practice for basketball time. And a guy shows up from the Clippers. And he's like, I'm here to practice for the team. What are they going to say? No, you're not on the team. Okay, 
that's kind of external. Imagine a, uh, a basketball player from the Celtics. A few people, yeah. Thank you, Jared. Are they going to even let that guy in the building? Okay, now imagine a, a, a Dodger player shows up. More external, right? Okay, imagine one day a guy shows up for a game to play on the Lakers, and they're like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the 2021 Spelling Bee Champ of America. And they're like, no, you can't play with us. And he's like, I'm really good at spelling. Do you see like these degrees of externality, right? Uh, Paul is describing a people that are truly and fully and completely external to the life that's found in God. He describes their minds as hostile minds. So it's not just being external, it's being hostile towards. Paul uses the word mind, and it means more than what we think of when we say mind. When I say mind, you think of like intellectual capacities, the way we think and thought process, and that's part of what Paul's saying. But Paul is saying the inner disposition that you used to have, or some of us still do have, is hostility toward God. Hostile is never a word you want used to describe a group that you're a part of, a family that you're a part of, a work environment you're a part of. You want hostilities always to end. He's saying you used to be in a situation where you were fundamentally by nature opposed to God. He's saying that to the Colossians because they certainly were. Many of them were formerly pagans who worshipped pagan gods. Very easy to see, in their case, how they were opposed to God. Yeah, we didn't believe in the one true God. We worship false gods. We get it. Our minds were hostile to the one true God. Paul says things like this elsewhere, though, to unpack a little bit what he means by a hostile mind. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, referring here to people who were formerly pagans, are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. What did they do? And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, Paul is describing an inner disposition that does not claim that God is God and puts other things in God's place and is thereby hostile towards the one true God. He also says that hostility is acted out in evil deeds. If you possess hostility towards someone, eventually it's going to show up in what you say or what you do. You will not escape it. Eventually it's going to do that. Here's what he says the Colossians used to be doing. He said sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says, on account of these things, The wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So later in Colossians, he unpacks for us what it means to do evil deeds, to have hostile minds. He says, Colossians, you used to be doing these things. I know we read these things and we're not doing a lot of formal idolatry. You probably don't have an idol in your house made of stone. If you do, please come speak to me afterwards. (laughs) But you, you probably don't. You do, however... Uh, and all of us do, to be clear, uh, have problems idolizing usually immaterial things. Is that right? Sometimes material things like money, but not always material things. 
And our thoughts lead to deeds, and I think deeds lead to thoughts, and we, over time, grow in our hostility and enmity. Um, you never really just stay in one place. It usually grows. Have you ever gotten uh, early up in the morning, and it's really you know, cold in L.A., like just freezing cold, and you take a, like a warm shower? You know what I'm talking about? And you start kind of warm, and, and after a few minutes, you're like, i got to crank that up a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? And then by the end, you have like boiling hot water. It doesn't feel like boiling hot water to you. You've sort of slowly acclimated to the water, but you've cranked the knob as high as it can go. Everything's steaming up. It's like burning your skin, but really it feels good because it's, it's taken a while to get there. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, sin is very much like that. We, we acclimate ourselves to it, and we grow over time more hostile towards God, uh, uh, more an enemy of God. We grow in our evil deeds and in our evil works. And what is so important for us to understand is that this is our natural state. This is how we're born. We're born in to this world as hostile enemies of God. Now, I know that some of you here are like, that seems like a bit much. Um... I don't think it's that hard to, to, to prove to you that the world and the individuals that make up the world have made the world a pretty bad place in a lot of different times and ages and, and different locations. Uh, like, for example, when you get in like a, like a fender bender, your first thought is, cool, I'm going to meet someone new. Actually, your assumptions about them are that they're going to try and get you, right? You're worried that, that they're actually a lawyer and you're in trouble. Your assumption is that don't, they don't have your best interest in, at heart. You don't have an accident and think it's all going to work out great. You think, what is this person going to do to me? You don't teach your kids to lie. You don't have to hold a lying clinic in your house. My kids lie boldly to me. <laughs> You guys have kids that occasionally just lie with immense boldness. They're like, I didn't make a mess in my room. <laughs> what? I didn't teach them. I don't teach my kids to take toys from each other. I don't teach my kids to throw tantrums. I know that I'm being hard on my kids. All your kids do, just to be clear. I encounter people a lot who, who, one of the reasons that they're not believers is they ask this question, how is it possible that God could be good? Have you ever encountered someone like that? Why would God say that such and such a thing is not okay? And why would God condone other things? Why would God say certain sexual practices are unacceptable? Why would God allow evil to happen? You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, we are such enemies of God naturally that the Lord of the universe is someone that we deem it is appropriate for us to judge. We go into the trial room, and we see the judge, and we're like, no, no, get in the dock. I'll be the judge today. Do, what, what kind of hostility does that take? It seems wild to me that I am an individual who was born at a particular time, in, in, in the 1980s, the mid-1980s, in, in a location, Southern California, to a particular culture, in a particular nation, and my assumption is that God shares all my opinions. 
And everyone thinks that. Our hostility is so great that we put God in, in, in the docket. We, we say, we're going to judge you. Um, I believe there are many blessings in the world and many good things. But I think on the whole, we've made a mess of the world. Things are not well. That sin abounds at the individual and the corporate level, the national level, the state level, all over the place. And I also think we have a culture that works extremely hard to get us not to see sin and its consequences. Extremely hard. And here's the thing. I think some of the things that culture uses so that we might not see sin and the consequences of sin can be good things. Medicine. Do you guys like medicine in general? Some of you guys are like, nope, no medicine for me. There are many people in this room that would already be dead if it were not for modern medicine. I'm one of them. I got appendicitis when I was 19. If that happened to me in like 1711, that's it for Andrew. He's dead. Do you see what I'm saying? Like medicine pushes back the consequences of sin. It creates space between us and our regular lives and a real thing that, by the way, is going to happen to all of us. We also delegate dealing with the greatest brutalities of life to certain segments of people. Some of those people here today. We delegate dealing with bodies of those who have recently died to doctors, to nurses, to morticians, to funeral home directors. We delegate dealing with great illness, illness to, to the medical community. We delegate brutal conflict to soldiers and police officers. I'm not saying that that's a bad move on the part of our society. I'm thankful for all the people who do those tasks. I'm saying I and many of you on a regular basis do not face the most brutal, real features of human life. And it makes us think that the world is a more righteous place than it actually is. We don't experience death a lot. Uh, we don't think about it a lot. There is one day we think about death a lot. And we kind of glorify it and kind of celebrate it. And it's today. You guys like Halloween? When I was a kid, I was like, Mom, I want to dress up as a goblin for Halloween. And she's like, not in my house. You will not dress up like a goblin in my house. My mom is from the South. And I'm like, Mom, you've got to chill out and relax. I did not say that to her face. Because I said, my mom is from the South. Okay. Um, and so I got older. And I don't really know what happened. But I know that my heart about Halloween has changed a lot. I walk around my neighborhood, which is normally like a normal neighborhood. But during Halloween, people put like fake corpses up, you know, hanging from trees and blood and bone. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm walking around like, devil worshiper, devil worshiper, devil worshiper. <laughs> I don't want you to run to Hope Kids and throw out your kid's Spider-Man costume. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying like for a moment on Halloween, we, as Mike said earlier, kind of jokingly process the brutal realities of life. And I'm saying to you that uh, death and sin and all the consequences in between are real. They're real. Some of you know that more intimately than others. But if you have called on the name of Jesus, 
Paul says, uh, you at one time in the past were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Later, when he tells them the evil things that they used to do, he says, you once did these things, but you don't do them anymore. The gospel begins with the hard news of the brutalities of life and the problem of sin and how sin brought into the world through our first parents and then our repetition of sin in our own lives, the consequences of sin, which is the result, uh, which results in death. Uh, but there's good news, even on Halloween. Amen? Paul continues, he moves from our past rebellion to our present. We're reconciled. We're reconciled. In verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, the structure of the sentence is a tad weird, so I want to help you out. You see, and you, in verse 21, you guys see that? You can skip the next set of words until verse 22 to understand what he's saying. And you, comma, he has now reconciled. You guys see that? The subject of the reconciliation, the object of the reconciliation is is the Colossians, and by extension, us. Reconciled. Do you reconcile with friends? Like, only if something's gone wrong, right? Reconciliation is something you do with someone uh, that things are not uh, well with. And then he goes even more than that. He says, um, he is reconciled, and he's talking about them or, or us, in his body of flesh by his death. What is the historical location of reconciliation? Where is it? On the, on the cross. Good. People are like, Judea, Jerusalem, Israel. Yes, yes, yes. Specifically, it's through Jesus' cross work where God the Son, the co-eternal God the Son, the one who has always existed and always will exist, who, who holds everything in the universe together, all the molecules who set the stars on their course and keeps them there, where God the Son takes on human flesh, bears the name Jesus of Nazareth, and dies a real, actual, physical, brutal death in your place. That's a scandalous truth that Paul's teaching. He's not saying Jesus was a really good man who's a good example for us to follow. He's already said Jesus is the God the creator of the universe, the sustainer. He's also not saying that God waved his hands in heaven and made everything right. He's saying the Lord of the universe came down from heaven, uh, hit the dirt, got to work, and went to a cross and died for you. We call this the cross work of Jesus. It's often called that. And I, I want to I unpack it a little bit. Got some time, right? I want to unpack it a little bit. I want to talk about what it is that Jesus achieves at the cross. The big word, the big word, I think, that encompasses all of it that you can use when you talk to people and that I think will mean something to people today is rescue. Jesus goes to the cross and he rescues sinners. Jesus goes to the cross and he rescues sinners. That's the broadest, most general word I think you can use. He does that through his own death in which he does a number of other things for us. So I got these other words for you. Some of these words are theological, but I'm going to try and explain what they mean. I'm going to try and do it quickly. Though, to those who are guilty, who are guilty of crimes, anyone here guilty of any crimes? Every hand's got to go up. To those who are guilty, he justified. 
He made them innocent in a court of law. He took guilty criminals and made them innocent, declared them righteous. To those who are enemies of God on the other side of the battle lines, who were hostile and held enmity towards God in their hearts, he made them allies by reconciling them to God. He justified them, he reconciled them. You should write these down. To those who owed a great debt, the debt of sin, the debt caused by sin, to those who owed a great debt, he made them debtless, he paid their debt by forgiving them. You guys still with me? To those who were enslaved, he emancipated them by redeeming them. To those who were strangers and unknown to God's household, he made members of God's household by adopting them. I wanted to give you a big word to describe it all. The word I chose is rescue. But these other words are all over the place in the Bible. I want you to have a full orb understanding of what it is Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, achieved at the cross. He justified the unrighteous. He made peace with enemies. He forgave immense debt. He emancipated slaves. And he adopted those who call on his name into the family of God. For everyone here today who is a believer, that is true for you. Anyone here today who is not a believer, that is free for you. It is yours to take, to believe, and to possess, because God did the work for you. Paul goes on, though. He's not done. He says that he reconciled them in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Paul in the Greek is using what's called an alliteration here. Each of those words starts with the same Greek letter. That's how you know Paul was a preacher. Alliteration. Worked for a few people. Anybody feel blameless? <laughs> I mean, Paul says he's, he's going he's gonna to present you blameless. Anybody feel holy? Or above reproach? Like if someone said, what, what is one word you would describe yourself with? Like at a family gathering, you were like, blameless. <laughs> We'd be like, seems like you're not, if that's what you say. Holy, I'm above reproach. Describe yourself in two words, above reproach. I don't know. Uh, what Paul is describing is how Jesus declares us at the cross to be these things. He declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be holy. He declares us to be blameless. He declares us to be above reproach. And Jesus is not done at the cross. He continues to work on us by the power of the Spirit so that what we're declared over the course of our life approaches our actual substance. I am not in substance blameless. Ask anybody who knows me. <laughs> I'm not in substance above reproach. Occasionally someone will say to me, you know, many years ago you said this really mean thing to me. And I'll say, I have no memory of that. Does sound like me though. I'm not in substance 
holy. I'm, I'm declared these things. And I, I am actually these things through the declaration of God. But over the course of my life, I believe, because God is good and God is faithful and God is all-powerful, that what God has declared me to be will approach my substance, that, that over time I will become holier. Do you guys know the theological word we use for that? Sanctification. When does that happen? <laughs> I don't believe it gets finished in our lifetime. Some Christians do. It's like asking the question, my kids, when am I going to be an adult? I don't know. I'm pretty convinced that I'm an adult now at, you know, 35. But I don't know when that happened. You know what I'm saying? We're declared a thing, and Jesus, through his power, brings us along to become that thing. We become what we already are. Our present is that we're reconciled. Lastly, our future is that we are rooted. We'll talk more about what we're rooted in. Verse 23, Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. So if we read verses 21 and 22, we pretty easily go, amen, right? And then we read 23 and we're like, oh no. There's a scary word there. What's the scary word? If. If is a scary word. When my daughter was younger, I said, I'm going to get you ice cream. She's like, yes. And I said, if, and she immediately started crying. <laughs> like, Whatever the condition was, she was afraid she wouldn't meet that condition. Um, if, if, what is Paul teaching us here? What is the Lord through Paul teaching us here? I read a lot on this, uh, trying to get the best perspective I possibly could. And on the one hand, people want to drain this if of its sharp edge. And then some people, I think, take it way too far. I think we need to understand that this is a warning from Paul. I just want to begin by saying that. It is a warning from Paul. I won't pretend like it's not there. But it's contextualized, I believe, in the faithfulness and power of God. I think when we read 23, we see our perspective. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's saying... You will make it to the end if you persist to the end. I think we see God's perspective uh, in places like Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also, what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also, what? Louder. And those whom he called, he also... And those whom he justified, he also. Is there any line in there where it says, and those he called, most of them, aside from the few that he forgot about, the few that slipped through the cracks in his fingers, the few that were too evil, that God couldn't do anything about them. He says, no, no. When God starts something, God finishes something. The thing is this. Are we God? No. Our concern should not be whether or not we would fall out of God's graces. Once God has you, 
He doesn't lose you. Our question should be, have we ever really, truly encountered Jesus, been granted faith and repentance, and begun a new life? The warning, I think, is real. The warning, I think, is real. I think Paul is faithfully warning the Colossians. If you abandon the faith, if you abandon the faith, it means you were never a member of the faith. You guys still with me? Okay. I think it should produce in us a healthy caution. But I just do want to say one thing. Um, It is important to read the actual words that Paul says here. He says, if indeed you what? Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed. Uh, He doesn't say, if indeed you don't sin too much. I just want you to notice that. Should you sin? No, but that's not what Paul says here. He also says, if indeed you attend the best church in an area. He doesn't say, if indeed you have very high spiritual experiences of God. I, I think you should have good experiences of God, but that's not the condition that Paul's giving here. He doesn't say, if you see in your, in your life that God is blessing you, you know you're in. He doesn't say that either. He says, if you remain steadfast to the hope of the gospel, not swerving, Firm and founded in. He says this, really simply this, cling to Jesus. That's it. Cling to Jesus. People think that the gospel is the beginning stage of of understanding God and we move on to other things. (laughs) We don't. We seep in it. We soak in it. We delight in it more. We experience more joy from it. Our hopes are raised in it and our suffering is muted in it. All the things that Jesus gave us through his work at the cross surpass any other hope that we can have. There's so much to hold on to there. Cling to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. One more, one more, I think, form of encouragement for us. Have you ever applied for a job that you really wanted? Anybody? Some people are like, never. <laughs> have you ever worked with someone um, like as a job coach, like that person is helping you prepare, everyone will prepare you for an interview? Anybody? And they're kind, right? They, they help you go through possible questions that you might get. They do mock interviews with you. They make sure to the best way they know how uh, to know the ins and outs of the job that you're applying for. You guys know what I'm talking about? So imagine you do that. And you, you spend weeks and weeks with this person who's preparing you for an important interview. Um, and, and then one day they say, you're ready. And so you get dressed up in your interview clothes and you go to the interview place and you sit down at the interview table and then your job coach walks into the room and sits down across and your job coach is the one that's interviewing you. You follow me on that? Be a surprise, right? How confident would you feel about that interview? Jesus says, um, or Paul says here, Paul says he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and a reproach before him. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying uh, the person, the person who is the judge at the end, which is Jesus, he's the one that's, that's preparing you and bringing you to the judgment. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is going to make you blameless and holy and above reproach to appear before himself. 
Do you see that you can trust him? Hope Chapel. Simply put, Paul is saying, cling to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for uh, the power of your word. We're thankful that you inspired this letter to be written and that you sovereignly ordained that it would be preserved and handed down by faithful brothers and sisters over the centuries to us. We thank you that Paul could powerfully speak to the Colossians particularly, but that you can powerfully speak to us uh, as the Lord of the universe who has acted on our behalf through a letter that a man wrote 2,000 years ago. We thank you for the hope that we have through the work of your son at the cross. Pray as a church that we would persist, that we would cling to that faith, that we would be found and firmly established in it, that we would not swerve, that the ups and downs of life and the pool of, of other worldviews and, and other ways of answering the big questions of life and other religions and other idols would not pull us away from the power and the truth found in the hope of the gospel, which is preached in all creation. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.